What are the major consequences of industrialization, which is the age of new imperialism, where modern powers establish and develop empires on a global scale yet to be seen? So the setting? Around 1750, life in Europe, China, and India were similar regarding the quality of life for their respective citizens. All three of these regions made similarly proportioned contributions to the global economy. Western powers maintained mostly trade post-empires, with the exception of the conquest of significant parts of land found in the Americas. Land-based empires in Qing Dynasty China, the Ottoman Empire, and the Mughal Empire remained politically and militarily competitive with those armies of the West. So the outcome. By 1900, China had been divided into spheres of influence after agreeing to several so-called unequal treaties with several European countries, the US and Japan. By that time, they were halfway through what they called their century of humiliation. India, once the leading global exporter of cotton textiles, had become a deindustrialized society and was now a British colony devoted to the growth of cash crops. According to historian Robert Marx, by the early 1800s, India had now contributed about 2% of world manufacturing output, China 7%, and Europe and the US combined for about 80%. Western militaries now dominated those of the rest of the world, and it was necessary for non-Westerners to rethink their ways or fall behind. So how did that happen? So it's important to understand a major difference before we start this episode, and that's the difference between the motivations and justifications regarding why Europeans began such aggressive campaigns of global conquest. When we talk about motivations, we mean the inspirations that led to industrial powers wanting to conquer others. Among these are economic motivations, like the desire to use colonies for the resources they held, or as markets to sell the manufactured goods produced back home. Colonies might also provide a state and its people with an increased sense of nationalist pride as more and more lands are swallowed by their flag. These new lands could also strategically help the militaries of the rising imperial powers of the West by serving as naval ports or coaling stations as their ships cross the oceans. So on the other hand, justifications for imperialism, they cover the explanations that attempt to rationalize the conquest of others. Some had adopted the recent theories of Charles Darwin regarding the evolution of species by latching onto his belief in the survival of the fittest. They took this idea, originally applied by Darwin to different species of animals, and instead attached it to the different societies of mankind. These social Darwinists believed more modern states were able to modernize and could thus outcompete against less evolved societies. Aggressive and militaristic behavior was now justified by imperial powers as a natural process of the strong overtaking the weak. Another popular belief during this time was in the value of the civilizing mission, which argued Western states had an obligation to colonize others so they could bring their supposedly quote-unquote superior institutions, systems, ideas, and religion that would thus be used to lift perceived quote-unquote less advanced peoples into a higher state of being. Though this argument frequently appears in the sources, it doesn't mean those who were imperialized were actually uplifted, as you'll soon learn. These motivations and justifications, though, went hand in hand to help the powers of Europe, the US, and Japan build their enormous empires. 
So let's establish what actually weakened China and India in relation to these imperial powers to kick things off. We've previously established that silver is what really helped establish the world's first fully global economy, with Europeans moving this product from the Americas and Japan, especially to markets in China, who were using the precious metal as their base of tax revenue and currency. By the 17th century, the British had developed quite an obsessive taste for Chinese tea thanks to cheaper prices and its ability to stimulate otherwise exhausted industrial laborers. But here's the problem. China produced a variety of goods that are desired in European markets, like silks, porcelain, and increasingly tea. However, as the 18th century came to a close, Britain was losing its grip on its flow of silver, and the Chinese refused any British attempt to gain a greater access to Chinese markets. So the British had to scramble to find another offering that could generate demand in China. After trying cotton and different manufactured goods, the British realized the only thing creating any sort of real interest was the addictive drug opium. By the early 19th century, British merchants were offering free pipes and cheap prices to get as much of China's population hooked, developing approximately 40 million addicts while switching the flow of silver back to British merchants. Opium would devastate the lives of millions of Chinese while simultaneously proving to be the magic key that unlocked China's markets for Britain. It would only make sense then that China's government decided to step up its pursuit of ending this illegal trade. The Qing destroyed thousands of chests of opium and blockaded British trade, and the British sent their navy in defense of continuing the trade, launching the First Opium War of 1839-1842. The British used their new iron ships, thanks to their industrial transformation, that wreaked havoc on China's military and its ability to maintain control over their own lands. China was forced then to negotiate the Treaty of Nanjing, otherwise known to them as the first in a line of unequal treaties. China lost control of Hong Kong to the British, were forced to pay millions to British merchants, aka drug traffickers, stemming from their destruction of the opium chests, and they had to open up more ports to foreign trade. So this development marks the first of many instances where European militaries, backed by iron and steam power, were able to outmuscle Asian and eventually African opponents in an effort to expand the borders of their empires. Moreover, the Opium War was fought with a mostly foreign army made up of Indian soldiers fighting on behalf of the British East India Company. If this could happen with Indian soldiers in China, then what's going on in India? The flooding of Chinese markets with Indian-grown opium would have negative consequences on India's markets as well. Cotton textiles manufactured in India had once enjoyed global popularity, but they were now replaced by the textiles produced in the factories of Great Britain. Meanwhile, the British East India Company used its taxes from India to raise an army of Indian-born soldiers known as sepoys. This factor, along with the political instability between the declining Mughal Empire and local Indian princes, meant the East India Company was able to establish control over much of India by the middle of the 19th century. British textiles were now flooding Indian markets, destroying the Indian textile industry once and for all. The economy of India now had to pivot to producing raw materials for export in order to satisfy the taxes collected in money. So Indian farmers focused their efforts on growing raw cotton, indigo, sugarcane, and opium. This quote-unquote free trade served British interests above all else because now they had no competition in textile production and had a source of both food and raw materials in India. 
This would further grow the strength of the British Empire and draw interests from other countries seeking to boost their nation's economic and political strength. By the second half of the 19th century, European powers used their militaries or threatened their use in order to begin campaigns of conquest, especially on the African continent. The British established the Suez Canal in Egypt and had extensive gold and diamond mining operations set up in South Africa, helping to draw more European interest in the continent. So in 1884-1885, delegates from Europe and the U.S. met at the Berlin Conference to diplomatically divide Africa among themselves, hoping to avoid the potential of going to war in the name of claiming territory. This conference, without any African representation, decided upon the division of the entire continent, save Liberia and Ethiopia. However, as we'll discuss later, this gentleman's agreement doesn't mean Africans themselves would surrender the territory without a fight. Smaller islands in the Pacific, meanwhile, were being claimed by Europeans, the U.S., and Australia by the late 1800s. These islands were sources of guano for agricultural fertilizer and other mineral resources. France took control of the region in Southeast Asia, known as Indochina, making up modern Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Russia pushed itself further and further east, where it eventually clashed with Japan. Japan, fully underway in their political, military, and economic transformation of the Meiji Restoration, established control over the island of Taiwan and the Korean Peninsula after defeating China in war in 1895. Now, bumping up against the imperial ambitions of the Russian Empire, those two countries clashed in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905. Japan emerged as the victor, cementing control over some contested territories in East Asia and islands in the Pacific. The U.S. had been expanding its control across its western frontier. This expansion cost the independence of Native American tribes, resulting in their near elimination at times, and frequently the resettlement of these populations onto reservations where the territory given to tribes could thus be managed by the federal government. Attempts at bringing Native peoples into a supposed higher state of civilization resulted in children being taken from their families to be sent to boarding schools, much like the one right down the road from where I live in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. These Western empires were able to govern their subjects through implementing complex bureaucracies, incorporating efficient means of modern communication and transportation, and imposing their ideas on economics and missionary activity. They developed relationships with pre-existing elites who wanted to keep their wealth and status to help manage these far-flung empires. Thus, populations numbering in the tens of millions could be efficiently managed by only a couple hundred European administrators and their local collaborators. Europeans identified and ranked groups they could rely upon for administration and other groups that they believed were not to be trusted. For instance, the British identified the Sikhs and Gurkhas of India as martial races, that is, groups of people they believed who could staff the military or police force of the British Raj in India. What's notably unusual is that while Europe was trending toward more liberal and democratic institutions at home, they were busy imposing authoritarian-style governments within their colonies. Colonial states were able to achieve their economic goals through taxation, taking land, demanding labor, and infrastructure development. Incorporating these societies into the global economy, driven by the demand for resources like gold, diamonds, rubber, and more, led to significant change. Farming to feed one's family declined as people turned to wage labor or cash crop farming to pay their taxes. But they struggled with poor conditions and high mortality rates in these low-paying jobs. 
forced labor on public projects, such as the French demanding labor from all of their subjects for 10 to 12 days a year in Africa, drew resentment. The Congo Free State, under Leopold II of Belgium, was the site of horrific cruelty in forced rubber collection, leading to widespread suffering and the loss of life to the tune of about 10 million lives. While some regions, like the cacao growers of West Africa, experienced prosperity, most faced challenges like famine and dependence on ever-shifting world market prices. Colonial rule also had a major impact on the cultural identities of African and Asian societies. Western education played a crucial role in forming these new identities, providing job opportunities and improved social status. The Western-educated elite embraced European culture. However, their hopes of being seen as equals with white colonial authorities were often disappointed. Religion also contributed to identity, seen in widespread Christian conversion in Africa. Intellectuals in Africa also sought to establish a shared pan-African identity, pushing back against the racist and discriminatory practices of Europeans. The notion of tribe emerged as a new sense of belonging, developed in part by colonial governments, but also adopted by Africans to provide a sense of security and organization amidst these turbulent times, especially in quickly developing and changing urban areas. Finally, it should be clearly understood that those who were colonized did not simply accept their condition. Oftentimes, they actively fought back against it. I'd like to introduce you to a few examples to close out this episode. The Indian Rebellion of 1857 was one of the earliest and most significant resistance efforts against British colonial rule during the era. Triggered by cultural insensitivity and recent political actions, Indian sepoys rebelled against the British East India Company. Although the rebellion was ultimately crushed, it did lead to the end of the British East India Company's rule and the beginning of control by the British government. China, meanwhile, had adopted certain principles of westernization while maintaining principles that defined Chinese culture in what they called self-strengthening. However, Westerners continued to threaten and invade China, further weakening the Qing state. The Boxer Rebellion of 1899 to 1901 was a response to this foreign influence and exploitation. The Boxers were a secret society opposing foreign presence, and they were supported by the Empress Zhou They targeted missionaries, Chinese Christians, and foreigners. This rebellion was put down by a mix of Western powers, leading to increased foreign control in China. The Battle of Adwa in 1896 marked the high point in Ethiopia's resistance against European expansion in Africa. Ethiopian forces, led by Emperor Menelik II, defeated the Italians through the use of both guerrilla warfare and modern military technologies, especially the Maxim machine gun. This battle, along with smart diplomacy that resulted in an alliance with Russia, ensured Ethiopia was one of the few independent African states throughout the 19th century. These struggles, though largely unsuccessful at achieving independence during the era, inspired later generations of anti-colonial resistance movements and contributed to the eventual dismantling of colonial empires in the 20th century. So remember, by 1900, China had been divided into spheres of influence after agreeing to several so-called unequal treaties with several European countries, the US and Japan. By that time, they were halfway through what they called their century of humiliation. India, once the leading global exporter of cotton textiles, had become a deindustrialized society 
and was now a British colony devoted to the growth of cash crops. According to historian Robert Marx, by the early 1800s, India had now contributed about 2% of world manufacturing output, China 7%, and Europe and the U.S. combined for 80%. Western militaries now dominated those of the rest of the world, and it was necessary for non-Westerners to rethink their ways or to fall behind. So there it is. That's our last episode on the time period of 1750 to 1900. Up next, we are into a period of global turbulence as we look at the world wars and the crisis that unfolds in the early 20th century. So again, if you found this episode helpful and you want to express your thanks, please feel free to check out the PayPal link in the episode description. Until next time, take care, everyone. Thank you.